Welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, December 20th, 2013. This is our last show of the year. This week, episode 310 comes to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and here with me in the studio working hard this week is Jessica Lawson at the controls. Good afternoon. Good day, Jess. We've been... uh, Keeping her very busy this week, putting together clips for this show. Back in Studio C is my co-host and partner, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Is it always fun to do the show? Gotcha. All right. Always a pleasure working with you, Cliff. Today's segments include the IAQ. Oh, by the way, our good friend, Dr. Dietrich Wow will also be joining us uh, as we review the year of 2013. We're going to go back and look at some of the what Cliff and I at least felt were key points that were brought out on the show over the last year here. So we're going to do the year in review show. Right before that, we'll have, of course, our radio trivia quiz. And then uh, we'll go to halftime, thank our sponsors, and, of course, finish with our roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. You know, I want to just make sure we also, since it is a year-ending show, just say thanks again to our sponsors, uh, Indoor Environment Connections, John Don, Cleaning, Clean Facts, and Cleaning and Maintenance uh, Management Magazine. They have been our marquee sponsors for, for many years now, and we really appreciate their uh, their support of the show. And also, of course, don't forget about the IAQ Training Institute. Uh, you can learn more about the training you trust from IAQ Training at iaqtraining.com. We also have those continuing education credits if you need them. Just send me an email at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And, of course, you can download the shows from iTunes or from our website, and you can always follow the link that says go to the show at the top of our website where you can either stream or download shows. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submit your answers easy. Either email it to my email address, cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Andy Krozowski, Comcast Metal Products, Mars PA, for his answer, tortious interference. 
which is a civil wrong a plaintiff's attorney will claim when false claims and accusations are made against the business or an individual's reputation in order to drive business away or when a wrongful act is used to come between two parties of a mutual contract. Uh, Joe and I really appreciate Andy's competitive spirit and his perseverance in answering our trivia questions most weeks. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, December 20th, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. What article, section, and clause in the U.S. Constitution empowers Congress to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries? Back to you, Joe. That's a good one, Cliff. We'll have to, I'll look forward to seeing the answer on that one. Let's let's go right into it here, Cliff. Uh, we don't have a guest this week. It's me, you, and Dr. Wow, and we're going to go back through the year, and we picked out some highlights of a bunch of sh- from shows, and uh, I think what we'd like to do is start with one that actually kind of rolled back into the late 2012 era, but, you know, Cliff was, uh, I, and I think rightfully so, Cliff felt that, the point made in this interview with Jim Thompson, this was episode 267. Jim's well known as a large loss guy who's um, very, very been very successful in, in handling large losses. And we had him on the show. And uh, let's see if we got that clip. So if you put four sticks underneath a, um, a dynamite, underneath an X-ray machine, parts of it, in front of the um, Caesar's Palace, you could close down the strip for three to five years. That would hurt the great state, and that would hurt the country. And there's not enough people to clean that type of stuff up. And I frankly think that corporate America would pay dearly to get their poker chips back. Cliff, but, you know, I, I can understand now, going back, why you thought that was an important clip. Maybe you could, ex- you know, just uh, elaborate a little bit for us. Well, there's a lot of used equipment available in the medical industry. There are x-ray machines, uh, you know, that are sold. There are other types of equipment that may have um, nuclear material within it. And, you know, this idea of taking a device that contains nuclear material, some sort of explosive, and setting it off in a crowded place, you know, New York City, Las Vegas, you know, it's a perfect scenario for a dirty bomb, and you didn't really have to build it. You know, all you needed to do was buy the device, attach an explosive to it, and detonate it. And it could be a major, major problem. And I think people in the cleaning and restoration industry need to look at what materials they might be asked to clean up in the future. It could be nuclear, it could be chemical, it could be biological, it could be from, uh, you know, something like avian flu or, uh, you know, the next apocalypse. Uh, just some things we need to think about. Yeah, I agree. I'm going back and looking at it. I thought that was a great clip. But you got another one here. We, you know, Cliff, as most of our listeners know, 
he likes to get people in that help with business and, and understanding business and selling and marketing. And he had a great guest that he brought on, Dan Draws, uh, episode 268. And Dan is... Um, uh, he's a marketing guy, isn't he, Cliff? Maybe you could fill us in a little more. He's a, a very bright advertising and marketing guy, and is a Pittsburgh native, uh, graduate of Harv, uh, Harvard University. You know, in design, won a lot of uh, awards for the different things uh, you know that he's done, and he has actually a lot of knowledge about cleaning and restoration because he's done a lot of uh, you know design work and advertising. Uh, and creative work, not only for individuals who do disaster restoration, but he also did work for Restoration Industry Association in terms of marketing and branding. And, you know, I always think that, uh, you know, his observations and, uh, you know, are, are, are just brilliant. So, yeah, if we could bring Dan's quote on. Okay, uh, Dan, what sort of strategies can our listeners use to close the deal or get the customer to, to buy, you know, without yeah. using high pressure. Right. Let me tell you a story. Okay. So, um, you walk into a bar and you see, um, let's say if you're a guy and you see this really uh, cute girl at the bar and, uh, you watch her for a couple of minutes and you think, man, this is, this is just the kind of person I want to spend the rest of my life with. So you walk up to her and you say, you know, I've been watching you for a few minutes and um, you are just the kind of person that I'd like to spend the rest of my life with. Why don't we get out of here, have uh, like three kids and live in Mount Washington, okay? <laughs> so that is too much too fast, so to speak. Um, the proper way to handle that um, for those single guys out there is you walk up to the bar and you say, is this seat taken? Now, if you cannot close that deal, you are not going anywhere with that, with that transaction. Okay. If you cannot get a seat at the bar, the next thing is, could you pass the nuts, please? And then, is that a cosmopolitan you're drinking? I think I'll have one. Would you like one, too? And then you can say, why don't we get out of here, have three kids, and move to Mount Washington? Okay. But at a certain point, you have to go in stages in order to develop a relationship. And the first hoop, getting a seat at that bar, is uh, really important. And you have to kind of look like a decent guy. You have to look like you're trustworthy. You have to have a lot of the attributes that it takes for people to trust you. At that point, you are, as if you can't close that, you are not going to move forward in that transaction. So selling is, as well as marketing, a series of progressive steps. We call them plateaus. You know, and Dan went on to explain how you do, you know, how you basically sell using those plateaus, whether it's through your website or through, you know, having a, uh, a, a properly design and, and, and Mark truck and people in uniforms and so on and so forth. It was a great show, Cliff. I thought he did a wonderful job. And uh, I think it's a great show, no matter whether you're a contractor or a consultant, the concepts he taught were applicable to either side. Anything you wanted to add before we go to the next one, Cliff? No, I thought, again, you know, if you can't get a seat at the bar, you're wasting your time. Good point. All right. The next one we have is from uh, attorney Dennis Beaver. And, and this is another gentleman that uh, Cliff was uh, aware of. I wasn't aware of. He's done some work with uh, the Restoration Industry Association, and we like to 
always say uh, hello to Pete Consigli, and hopefully we'll get to a, a little clip he's got here. Well, actually, not a clip, but a, an announcement they made earlier this week. And um, this is what we're going to call Leave it to Beaver. This is from show episode 270, and it's about avoiding the wimp factor. What's the wimp factor? Wimp factor, you find it all over the place, where the boss is afraid of an employee, where the boss is afraid of the insurance adjuster, uh, where you, when you do not establish from the very beginning in a relationship that you know what you're talking about, that you you are in control of the situation, uh, that you're not going to be jerked around. If you don't establish that immediately, in a polite, business-like manner, in a professional manner, then you are telegraphing to the other side, this guy or gal, I can step all over. And you see it so often. The whim factor shows itself where you have a... Uh, a client of yours, you have a homeowner who you get a, you know, we are, human beings are scientists. We make observations, draw conclusions. And the older we are, we should be pretty good at it. Well, you have a gut feeling that I'm going to have problems here. And you make a decision to go forward, but you do not establish a sense of boundaries. Don't screw with me. I'll do my job. You do yours. So the wimp factor shows itself. It can show itself right away. And then it often shows itself uh, promptly where there's a problem getting paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is the wimp factor the failure uh, to ask for the money, or is it the fear of, you know, many restoration contractors rely on insurance companies to provide work. You know, are they afraid to uh, get on the wrong side of the insurance adjuster or the company? Or you know, What are some things you see happen? Oh, you see that all the time. And it's so sad. I mean, it really, it, it, it's, it really is bothersome. You see it all the time where the, uh, the company, uh, you know, service master, serve for whoever it might be, whatever the company is, they are afraid they're either they be cut off or they're afraid of upsetting the, uh, the, the adjuster. And consequently, they allow themselves to be stepped on. If you, if you begin a relationship in a, in a very professional way, in a very strong way, and you make it clear that you're going to do your part, but you need their help, you need them to do their part. And if and the first sign of a problem needs to be addressed. Now, I, I will tell you across a, a law practice so that uh, I've been in private practice many years, and you learn things, and you learn ways of enlisting the help of somebody. For me, I call up, let's say, let's say uh, you owe my client money. And I call up and I say, hi, Joe, this is Dennis Beaver. And I need your help. I need your help. Now, when you, when you, someone asks you that, what is your immediate reaction? Well, what are you generally going to say? You know, Cliff, it's funny. Uh, I'm listening to this clip and I realized I did that yesterday. Um, I actually approached three people who owed us money, <laughs> and I, all three of them, I basically used that line. You know, I need your help. I need to, can you help me get this cleared up here before the end of the year? And it worked really well in two of the cases. I haven't heard back from the third guy yet, but uh, I'm sure it will. Uh, I like that tip. I, I liked uh, what Dennis had to say throughout the show on about, you know, an extremely important topic, whether you're a consultant, contractor, whatever. Getting paid. I mean, we're not here if we don't get paid. Anything you'd like to add, Cliff? No, I think fine. We should move on. Gotcha. Let's move on. Now, here's where we're we're coming up early on the year. Actually, um, I, I skipped my first show of the year, and I wanted to make sure we got a, a quote from Eckerd Johanning. Dr. Eckerd Johanning, most people in the 
mold world are familiar with Dr. Johanning from back in the 2000 era when they had the exposés on mold and Melinda Ballard's case, who also we had, and by the way, unfortunately passed this year. But um, you can go back and check out her show later with uh, actually her and Richie Shoemaker joined us. It was a flashback show, but they were on earlier in the year. Let's listen to what Dr. Johanning has to say about uh, what we call organic dust toxic syndrome. ODTS, I don't know that you mentioned that. I see that it was in the New York City guidelines. I think it may still be in there. Could you briefly tell our listeners what that stands for and, and whether or not that's still considered to be one of the occupational hazards? Yeah, certainly. It's called organic dust toxic syndrome. It's a variant to the hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And I should tell you, based on the research and pathology underlying both conditions. Now, one would be considered more an allergic mechanism, the farmer's lung hypersensitivity pneumonitis, as the name says. But there's an overlap to ODTS, which is more a toxic reaction. And it's more typical in, in so-called farm or agriculture uh, settings because of high exposure situation. If you go in a barn or a grain silo, that type of thing. And I have to say, um, based on my experience and talking to other occupation doctors, we don't see that as much. It's an acute presentation with a short duration of symptomatology and away from exposure. Again, you recover within a couple of days. We don't see that as much. But I think the underlying mechanism of it, now what's triggers that condition is similar if you do a cleanup of a storm damaged house and I can tell you I mean I'm following a patient out of New Jersey actually <laughs> we've been cleaning up a storm damaged house uh, many years ago I forgot the names of all these storms two three times now he's really got bad luck now and he didn't protect himself and he developed uh, a form of uh, hypersensitivity pneumonitis and rheumatological problems, you know, which is not unheard of in you know, intense exposure situation. And we think these are not allergic mechanisms. These are things similar to ODTS, the toxic reaction from toxic mold. And we actually confirmed in that situation the presence of stachybotrys, you know, producing airborne toxins uh, in significant levels. You know, uh, Dr. Johanning is well known in the industry, and we always we like to get um, different views on things. And we we've had others that felt you know that maybe that was a little little strong. But on the other hand, we've also had another MD on the show last year that I I just thought Cliff she opened my eyes in a big way. Um, you and I met her in Callaway, New Jersey, at a conference. Um, actually, it was Dr. Johanning's conference um, for the recovery after Sandy. And her name was Irene Grant. She's a medical doctor, but also a, a specialist in infectious disease. And she had some really interesting things to say. Let's start with her first clip. And um, we're going to talk a little bit here at first about just the fact of, of how difficult it is to even determine if someone has a fungal infection. Bacteria are very, uh, as we say, compliant. They grow in the, in the microbiology lab. They're easy to isolate. They're easy to say, there it is. Uh, the molds are not, uh, they often cultures come back, as I would say, falsely negative. Someone has an infection, you find it at autopsy, 
but you don't you don't find it before the person dies. Hmm. And I think it's based on uh, how they grow. Uh, they, they don't they don't grow by throwing off uh, or multiplying, dividing. Uh, they seem to grow like extending hyphae and moving in across tissues. And I know research is being developed to detect uh, products that fungi make. And because uh, detecting them by culture or tissue is mostly falsely negative and non-diagnostic. Therefore, most doctors don't even realize they're dealing with a fungal patient. I find that fascinating, you know, that... That these fungal infections could be commonly overlooked, essentially, by physicians. And then she went on to tell us a little bit about, uh, a little more detail about how this occurs and, and how these microorganisms, not just the fungi, but the bacteria, which are a little easier, as she explained, to to diagnose and to, to determine if they're causing a problem or they're reproducing. But she went on to explain a little bit more about the biofilm and how difficult it is to work with these cases where there's a biofilm issue and there may be fungi growing. Let's, let's listen to the clip. I recall I read something about coming from the industrial hygienist work about biofilms inside houses and how molds create a biofilm after they have a certain amount of uh, chronic dampness. So I was reading the biofilm from a microbiology point of view, and and then I went, whoa, now why would that not happen in the human body? Uh, so to make a long story short, this is being aggressively evaluated in medical centers because they know that uh, molds can make biofilms on you know catheters and things inside the hardware in the body, and they've been trying to study how to stop that. Uh, I learned at one of the um, trends in medical mycology conferences that the biofilms are made out of these hyphae uh, that are not, uh, they're too big for the immune system to uh, engulf and get rid of. And the only uh, known medication that gets rid of these hyphae is this drug called amphotericin B. And amphotericin B is usually only given in the hospital intravenously, and it's a horrible drug to give intravenously. But since it does not get absorbed at all, it's a big molecule, it doesn't cross. Um, and I know I knew that it was used in the, in the 90s or, or even earlier, just topically, people would use it for sinus, lavage, or whatever. And then she went on to talk to us a little bit about some work she had done. And I, like I said, I have to get three clips from here because of all the shows this year, this one just really hit me because of some you know, people I know who I believe are having problems that may be as a result of working in these damaged, water-damaged environments and then going out and you know working in uh, other occupations that have high exposure to biologicals. And it's just fascinating to me how she has gone about trying to treat this. So let's continue with Dr. Irene Grant. I thought to myself, you know, amphotericin probably killed the mold biofilm that was inflammatory. So I started using this amphotericin may, may as well wash, but I did something that I don't think anybody has done yet that I'm aware of. I told my patients, because I looked at their throats, their throats were uh, inflamed and even if the patient didn't feel it, their throats looked really, really raw. And so I had them swallow it. So they were they were washing their nostrils and the back of their throats. 
and therefore the whole GI tract. And to my amazement, on the all around plus or minus five percent, ninety percent got much better. They they they've lost their sinus problems, their throat problems. They also lost chronic fatigue. They also lost fibromyalgia. They also lost uh, reflux and all all sorts of bowel symptoms. Cliff, it's close to halftime. Before we go to halftime, did you want to add anything there? Um, I think the only thing I wanted to add is, you know, we, we talked about Dr. Yohanning and we talked about, you know, attending his conference. And, you know, the only thing that I'd like to mention is that the conference, you know, you and I and Mike McGinnis uh, were all kind of startled at this overwhelming concentration on fungi following Hurricane Sandy and storm damage, and no one really was talking about any of the other toxins that could have been in the water uh, in terms of chemical contamination and other types of biological contamination, such as E. coli, and it, people just need to think about it. And, uh, you know, again, uh, the use of water in the cleanup uh, makes a whole lot of sense. It's a whole lot easier to use soap and water and, and pressure clean than it is, and, and much more effective than it is to just try to HEPA vacuum and damp wipe and HEPA vacuum again. Back to you, Joe. And dry cleaning, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Let's let's go to our halftime. We want to thank our sponsors. I may have to supplement it a little bit here because we, we've got some people that have been really important to us over the years here, and I want to make sure that we get them all and uh, we, we make sure we thank them all. Go ahead, Jess. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. Those, of course, are our marquee sponsors. I also want to make sure that we stop and thank Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. And, of course, Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, who uh, have been serving their members for probably over 10 years now. I want to make sure they've been a great sponsor for us over the years, and Glenn Feldman has been a contributor here on the show. He's a, the executive director for IAQA. You can learn more about membership at IAQA at iaqa.org. And last but not least, let's also say thanks to Trisco, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners, 
who have been sponsoring the radio trivia question for at least the past year, maybe two now. So thanks all to all of our sponsors. Without them, we couldn't give this free information. And uh, that's all I wanted to say on that. Just Cliff had some good intro music, and I didn't get to use it. Can we do it now? Jess is going to jump on that. She's got all. She's all over this stuff. Let's do it. Let's start the second half. You know, we we pride ourselves on, on being a show that covers indoor air quality, disaster restoration, and building science. And building science is obviously an important component within disaster restoration and indoor air quality. And we had one of the true experts on building science in the world on the show this last year. His name is Sam Rashkin. He's the chief architect at the U.S. Department of Energy. And I thought his first statement coming in was really something that made me think, and I hope we'll get others thinking, so let's play that clip now. We've crossed the building science tipping point. We're building even code homes at a level of air sealing tightness and insulation um, uh, thoroughness that even the worst house allowed by law, a code home, will at today, as built, not be able to uh, protect the durability and health of the occupants. We crossed the building science tipping point because the homes are so tight that you basically don't know that you have enough fresh air. And therefore, indoor air quality is not extra credit. It's mandatory. You have to have ventilation. You have to start thinking about source control. We've crossed the building science tipping point in terms of the better insulated and better air sealed enclosures can no longer dry. So for decades and half a century, we've been building homes without pan flashing and kick-out flashing and good weather-resistant barriers and leaky foundations. And we got away with it because the older homes were so much more um, able to address getting wet because of the thermal movement for the assemblies that they could eventually dry. But the new homes, even the worst homes allowed by law, the code homes cannot dry. So we've crossed the building science tipping point and comprehensive moisture management is not extra credit. It absolutely is a must-do if you want to keep the house durable, keep the air quality safe. And the third thing is that the homes are so much tighter and better insulated that the negative air pressures created are greater. We have much more fans in homes at higher CFM. We have closed dryers at 200 CFM and greater. Uh, amazing super sucker uh, range hood and downdrafts that can go 1,500, 2,500 CFM, uh, central vacuums, the normal uh, fans for air handlers. And it's easy to do pressure on a house to 5 Pascal negative or more, which can now start to backdraft combustion appliances if they're not power vented or direct vented. So what really bothers me is we've crossed the building science tipping point. We've got to a space where homes today, if they don't address building science, are at risk for both the builder and the owner, and builders do not have on staff across the board with all builders an in-house building science expert or on retainer a building science expert who's available at all times to look at every decision that's made. That's crazy. Building science will only determine if that building will work or fail 
and it's not routine for builders to have that in-house. I, I think it's fascinating that Sam brings this up because, I, you know, whether you're a, a disaster restoration person, an indoor air quality person, a, a, contract, a, a consultant of some type, a contractor of some type, that statement affects you. Now, minimum code homes are to the point where we're not going to get away with things that we've been getting away with for 40, 50, 60 years building homes. You know, he mentions pan flashing. I talk to builders around this area all the time. I watch construction go on all the time. They don't use pan flashing. They got away with it because the building dried out. It's not going to happen anymore with these new code homes. And we as indoor air quality people and as disaster restoration people need to keep up with this. So, for instance, more thermal insulation, tighter buildings. Well, when you have a tighter building with more insulation that has a disaster and gets wet, it's tougher to dry out. You've got to know what you're doing with the with these new materials. So all the things he said come back and affect every aspect of what we do here at IAQ Radio. I've got one more thing that was just a pet peeve of mine that he mentioned. It's a two-minute clip, and it's about... HVAC and ductwork in attics. I think you're you're leaking into the next um, uh, component of the industry, which is home performance. Okay. I think essentially you're right. There's a little bit of both because it requires a little bit of design integration. You know, one of the ten steps of right sizing homes the right way is integrating systems. And very simply, in in two-story homes, you can maybe just upsize the floor framing a bit and allow, therefore, enough space to run the ducts between the floors rather than having to go to the expense of more ducts and horrible performance running the ducts through the attic and the air hammer in the attic. Uh, in single-story single homes, we, we there are lots of techniques and design strategies that would get your ducts inside the conditioned space, drop ceilings, pop-ups, uh, trusses. There's even an advanced technique where you actually could put the air hammer in the living space, but put the ducts in the attic and encapsulate and bury them underneath the attic insulation. So without going into all the technical detail, the point you're making though is so true. It's, again, appalling that we would run 55-degree chilled air through a 140-degree attic. And it's appalling that we'd run 115-degree um, heated air through a absolute freezing 20-15-degree attic. It's the most extreme uh, climate condition that the uh, that you could conjure up is the attic. It's more often more difficult than the outside, outdoors. For instance, it's 95 degrees outdoors in the winter, summer, but an attic can get up to 140. And so, we really need to one not have the ducts there because it's so inefficient, and two avoid all those penetrations between the house and the attic that are necessary for the uh, supply grills coming from the attic ducts. And so, and then you need an attic hatch to go up. That's another hole and you have recess lighting and it, it really, we can do so much better. And so this is a design issue and it's also a performance issue. And boy, is it hard to tell people, you know, they really shouldn't put this in your attic. And then they're like, well, but why? I mean, why would they build it that way if it's such a such a problem? And it's you know, it, then you have to get in to try and explain to them why it's such a problem for them. And I don't know. It's just uh, it's something that's baffled me for years. And I'm glad Sam brought it up. Then of course you could look at the the same issue basically with respect to crawl spaces. Um, we don't see that as often, at least in my area of the country, in many areas of the country. Though that's the predominant 
method for building new homes is over a crawl space. Anyway, I'll move on. That was a great clip. Sam Rashkin, Chief Architect, United States Department of Energy. That was show 280. Now, we also had another gentleman on this year, Barney Burroughs. Barney Burroughs is a well-known gentleman in the ASHRAE circles, American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. And I've got two clips from Barney. And then I want to bring in Dr. Weil because these will fall right into the next clip we have from him. Let's start with Barney Burroughs on air pollutants and what the categories of air pollutants should be. Well, the truth of the matter is you really only do have the two states. Um, you have solids and you have gases, both of which are carried in the airstream. And our exposure routes, of course, for um, our issues of IAQ, whether they be irritation or whether they be comfort or even worse, uh, uh, a disease and even worse outcomes than that. But the, but the secret is that a vapor is really a misnomer. It, it implies the gas phase. When you see a vapor, you're really seeing an aerosol, meaning that you're right at phase change when you're jumping from a liquid into a vapor and uh, and the reverse and usually when the vapor occurs is it's the reverse meaning a gas phase is condensing out uh, and becoming a fog or visible and it's actually an aerosol and that aerosol in many instances is both liquid and solid uh, think in terms of fog uh, and that sort of thing. Now, fume uh, is, is quite literally gaseous phase. And uh, so you really only truly have the two phases, uh, particulate and gas phase, when you're dealing with extraction and filtration. So it's, in a sense, a misnomer and a bit of a misuse um, of gas phase um, and possibly... Um, it's because of, of the, the, the precise point at which phase change occurs, and occasionally you get a visual fume that can occur, and that fume is visible. All right. The next thing we talked about was something that I, I know Dr. Wow and I have discussed for years, and, and this clip is just beautiful. It's about MERV ratings. The minimum efficiency reporting value, and it's not – I have to change my terminology. It's really not a rating. It's – uh. Well, let's let Barney explain it. Well, let me let me make a comment about that first, and then and then I'll answer your question. The original publication in '99 it took several years before the actual labeling happened. So it was it was several years later when it really did occur. You and, and most all filters sold into the commercial market do have a MERV designation. Now you. You just heard me say designation. I didn't say rating because MERV is not a rating. Okay. And that is, I think, the, the flaw of, uh, of the entire question because, in truth, um, MERV itself is simply a, a reference to a minimum efficiency level. And um, if, if anything, I'd have to say the one thing that will change and is changing right now um, is MERV is going away. And that's a good thing, in my opinion, because the data product 
of standard 52, which is a test method. It's not a, it's not a rating method. Um, as a test method, it was to give you the minimum efficiency of a filter over its life cycle. It does that. But MERV is not that. That's the composite curve that comes out of the data. MERV is a contrived average of, of three size bands, uh, up to one, from one to three, and from three to ten uh, microns in size. And it's an averaging. So MERV has always been a contrived uh, classification. And it was useful at the time to simply get the mindset away from the old NBS um, ASHRAE 85, 95% designation, which were all fictional. And so it served its purpose. Uh, I think it's time for it to go. But the data product out of 52 is an extremely important designation because it tells you precisely what that filter will do against a specific particle size. And that for designers and that for owners uh, and folks that are concerned about health effects is an extremely important um, bit of data. And uh, and so I, I think 52 has done a tremendous job of bringing us forward uh, in terms of understanding. Now, also out of that test method came the duct that is now being used for other test methods, test 145, which is the gas phase test, is using the same test duct. It's using the same quality control methodology. So it was a tremendous advancement for our for our industry. But it is not a bad thing that MERV is going away. Um, it is actually a good thing because uh, what it means is that the real data product of 52.2 uh, is coming forward, and and MERV can be an effective tool also in the development of rating systems, which looks at filters from the standpoint of other factors than just efficiency, life cycle, capacity, pressure drop, and those kind of issues. Well, Barney's a filtration expert, and that was Barney Burroughs on show 285. Uh, and I want to get a comment from Dieter in a moment, but before we do, let's go to his comments from Dietrich Weil, Dr. Dietrich Weil, our technical director. This is from show 291. We were talking about advanced indoor environmental quality, advanced consulting, and we wanted to make sure that people got some basics right, and that that's how we got into this conversation about the settling rates of particles and, and what affects that settling rate. So let's play this clip, and then we'll bring in Dr. Wildlife. But it's called the aerodynamic equivalent diameter. In other words, the behavior of particles in the air depends, A, on the size, the physical size, the shape, and the density. So a 10 micrometer particle of gold will not behave the same way as a 10 micrometer particle of water. In fact, a, a 10 micrometer particle of gold acts in the air and in the land like a 30 micrometer particle, like a 40, not like a 10. Even though if you look under the microscope, it's 10 micrometers in diameter. The aerodynamic equivalent diameter, you multiply by the square root of the density, and that of gold is about 16. That's why I took it, and I know what the square root of 16 is. <laughs> so a 10 micrometer particle of gold 
acts in the air and in the land like a 40 micrometer particle. Okay. That is even more important when we talk about fibers, particularly asbestos fibers. There are fibers which we have seen in the lung. I shall bring a put. Joe knows that uh, uh, a picture which was taken in the lung where fibers 30 micrometers in length were found in the alveoli. That is almost impossible. Well, it is not. Aerodynamically, fibers in the respiratory tract and in the air behave aerodynamically more according to their diameter rather than the length. And that was Dr. Wow on show 291. Let's bring him in live now. I just wanted to bring you in real quick, and I've got about five more clips to get through here. Any any comments on? Um, I, I think the Merv thing was something that was very interesting to me. Uh, something you've talked about for years that the old standard was smoking mirrors, uh, and that this Merv was much better. But I was kind of surprised when Bernie said it's it's not a rating; it's a a designation. Uh, well, yeah, he is right. Uh, by the way, whatever I said about the aerodynamic equivalent diameter, boy, I did say that well. I can't improve on that. But uh, that is absolutely true. And by the way, in fact, you have now the one picture that uh, Dr. Mossman took years ago. I have that one for 30 years or so, where she shows a very thin sub-micrometer uh, fibers in the lung, in this particular case of a hamster, and the poor uh, macrophages, the cleaning cells, which are all over the body, including the lung, and on your liver and so on. I, I'm familiar with the one in the lung. Now, they are about, oh, a few, maybe one micrometer, maybe a micrometer and a half in diameter, physical size, now, they are trying to chew up an asbestos fiber, which is 20 or 30 micrometers long. Well, <laughs> Mother Nature screwed up. That uh, uh, fiber does not belong there. The body can't defend against it. There are defenses, but the mechanical defense is not there, that it can be grabbed and carried out. It's the MRF, yeah, there's the MRF rating. I still have a problem. I have a problem with the test aerosol, which is not really very well defined. Uh, but that is okay. It is a start. It was certainly better than before. And uh, I just saw, and I wanted to make a copy of it, and I forgot, I forgot where, but it was an advertisement. I may have seen it uh, on the Internet, something. Uh, claimed to be very good in your house. I think it was an air filter for your furnace, and uh, uh, somebody who obviously has no idea what the heck he or she were talking about says that with this new filter, with a MRF rating of 8, will uh, collect all the fungi or the mold spores and bacteria and other allergens. Good luck. It just doesn't work that way. 
you need something a lot more sophisticated than a little air filter. So uh, it is being misused. And uh, then again, if you if you look at the average um, uh, customer, uh, who would know what a MERV rating is? People who should know don't know what it is. So the poor guy who goes to Walmart or Loeb or one of those uh, places and buys a filter, uh, they don't know what a MERV rating is, that's for sure. You know, Peter, when you talk about that photo from uh, Brooke Mossman, with Dr. Mossman, and it showed that, that five are being attacked essentially by these macrophages, it, it, it made me think when Dr. Grant talked about how the fungi reproduce in, in the body is it's not the, the spores so much as the hyphae and and the hyphae are yes very similar to that asbestos fiber yes size and in this case aerodynamic size is of importance if anybody wants to have that picture i i have uh, uh, joe has it i have it you can get it uh, uh, from me just send me an email my email is my last name, Wild, W-E-Y-E-L-1-1, at AOL.com. It's, for my eyes, one of the most beautiful pictures I've seen, honestly. Uh, it's unbelievable how well that one came out, and uh, I, uh, I knew about, at the time, I knew how and why and, uh, it was made. So it's, it's something. It's, it's, uh, it's a classic. There's no question about it. All right, we've got another show clip here. This is uh, Stick With Us Theater, and we'll, we'll come back to you in a moment. This is from uh, Dr. Ed Sobeck, who we had on show 298. And um, this is a question I've had for years, and starting to get a little more uh, better clarity on, on the role of MVOCs, microbial volatile organic compounds. Let's listen to Dr. Sobeck describe what they are and how they work. You know, I think I understand why they're there in the first place, but I've got a Ph.D. microbiologist on here. Let's get your your take on it. Why, when do the fungi produce these VOCs? Is it during the digestion of food? Is it um, a part of their uh, growth? Is it a part of a chemical warfare between these, these um, different molds and bacteria and other microbiologicals that are trying to grow? Well, you know, it's a little bit of both. Uh, definitely res respiration going on, so they're active vegetative growth. Uh, they're producing those VOCs. And, you know, you have competition that will produce those secondary metabolites that lead to uh, MVOCs production. At the same time, you know, some of the substrates, components in the substrates, they have different binders and fire retardants and things like that, which... We haven't investigated all this stuff in science. Really, you know, we need to really get up on understanding these interactions between the, the fungi and building materials. But those types of things may be act as, as an attack on the fungus. They may perceive it as that and produce VOC. So it's really a mixture, combination of these things that's probably most likely going on. Uh, definitely you have to have that active vegetative growth, though. Okay. And... Uh, that's one of the key factors. You may have also, you may have, if you're in a really damp environment, you may have mites and other things that are feeding on the insects and or feeding on the fungi, on the vegetative part of it. And that will really, you know, a lot of these things were produced to kill in the, quote, evolutionary uh, line of fungi. If you look back, there's theory there that says that 
a lot of these secondary metabolites are have insecticidal activity. So they're they're trying to ward off the the theory is they're trying to ward off the attacking insects that are trying to it's it's a big game of reproduction I guess. Yes, it is, and that's one thing. I mean, it's a good food source. You think about it. There's a lot of grazers out there. You know, um, mites and oh, well, you think you commented on the thing, Joe, with the pill bug thing on the uh, one of the uh, AIHA uh, discussion boards yeah. and. Uh, and then they're all grazing on this fungi, they're looking for as, for as, a, as a food source. Well, they have to protect themselves. You can't have something eating up all your all your leaves and expect to be able to produce uh, fruits. You know. That was a great. I love that one. That was a great, very interesting uh, quote from Doctor Sobeck. And here we got another one. I want to get to this one because I know Cliff and I both agreed this was a an interesting quote that helped us, and I'm sure others understand. A little more about chemical sensitivities. We had on show 302, a friend of the show and a gentleman in uh, New Jersey. His name is Steve Teams. Let's listen to a clip from Steve on episode 302. Once they acquire the sensitivity, there's something called a spreading phenomenon, and they become sensitive to more chemicals, usually starting with chemicals of similar structure, and, and then when people become sensitive to different chemicals, then it would be more properly called multiple chemical sensitivity. And then the environmental illness and um, uh, chemical intolerance, these are all uh, terms that, in my mind, apply to the same uh, phenomenon. Great show with Steve Teams. If you get a chance, go on, you know, if you've ever wondered about chemical sensitivities and, and how people deal with them. He's one of the people that I, I lean on when I have people in the, in his area that I can't help or whatever. I'll, I'll lean on Steve and uh, people like Carl Grimes, who I, I noticed he wasn't on the show this year. We've got to get Carl back soon. Cliff, before we go too much further, I wanted to get back to you. Do you have any commentary or anything you'd like to add at this point? No, I'm fine, Joe. All right. I think we're going to go over a little today, but I've got, Three other really good clips, and I want to get this one. Uh, it's going to be tough to choose. Let's go with Brady Carter, show 294, Jess. Uh, it's a two-minute clip on moisture sorption isotherms. Now, we're getting pretty detailed here. We had a great show with uh, Brady. He's with Decagon Instruments. They have a new product out that measures water activity, which has been kind of a, a difficult thing to do in the past uh, with respect to indoor environments anyway. It's been done for years with the food industry. Let's listen to what Brady Carter has to say on this particular subject. It would show that, you know, as a building material is getting wetter, it, and I hope I have this right, um, it's more conducive to microbial growth than once it hits the peak and starts down the other side and we start the drying. Is that somewhat accurate to say? Uh, it depends if you're measuring, if what you're tracking is moisture content, uh, then yes, that's true. Okay. Um, and, and the reason why is because uh, when uh, materials wet, they, well, they wet and they dry differently, and that's called hysteresis. And uh, at a given moisture content, let's say you were tracking moisture content, and this, this, all, this information is all contained in what we call a moisture sorption isotherm, which is the relationship between water activity and moisture content for any kind of material. It's unique to each type of material, has a, has a very unique shape, it's not linear. Um, and what can happen is that if you were to say track moisture content 
and you, you were able to look at one of these isotherm curves, what you'd find out is that that moisture content during drying is associated with a lower water activity than it is when it's wetted. And so if all you were doing is tracking moisture content, you wouldn't be able to see that. Now, if you were tracking water activity, it would make complete sense because when the building was wetting up and you were tracking water activity, you'd see exactly the point at which the, the organism could start to grow. You wouldn't even care what the moisture content was. You'd just be tracking water activity. So you, it wouldn't affect, uh, it, it wouldn't impact what you were doing because you would be basing it off of water activity. But if you were trying to do that with moisture content, then if you wet it up to a certain moisture content, there would be, it would be more susceptible to growth just simply because that particular moisture content during adsorption, what we call wetting up or adsorption, would be associated with a higher water activity than that same moisture content would be during the drying process. Really helped me understand that better. And I, I had a great time listening to Brady and talking with him, and then we actually worked with their equipment a little bit, which over time I think will become important. I know Cliff and I both feel that way, um, and he has his specific reasons for that. Now, let's go to Cliff. I think in many water damage restoration situations, we're using moisture meters, we're tracking moisture, we're moisture mapping, and we're not removing the equipment until we hit either a dry standard or the meters tell us you know, that a material uh, you know, is, is dry. And oftentimes, we're probably able to remove the equipment several days earlier by monitoring the water activity. You know, once the water activity is, is sufficient that it will not support fungal growth, and we know bacteria require more water activity than, than fungi, so once we won't support fungi anymore, why aren't we done? And I think it's something that the restoration industry, particularly if they're creative, uh, you know, you, you can have a great advantage in terms of selling large losses to insurance companies. So I think, you know, his equipment and that marketing uh, tactic, uh, we might see a lot of that in the future. Great point, Cliff. What I'd like to do quickly, we had two more quotes here I wanted to use, but we're running low on time. I'm going to kind of summarize the first one because it's a little hard to make out anyway. We had Dr. Wei Tang on the show, show number 304. Now, you've got to listen carefully with uh, Wei. Uh, he's, a, he's a tremendous microbiologist and actually a mycologist who has his own laboratory in New Jersey. And uh, we were talking about, actually, in this case, clearance after a water damage event. So in this case, in particular, a sewage event. Well, let's just go ahead and play it, Jess. I think people should be able to make it out pretty well. Do they have the money to do any sampling at all? We'll start with that. We want it visually clean. Um, if we do sampling, what type of sampling would you recommend following a sewage backup, let's say? Okay. A sewage backup um, has two components. It has fecal matter and also water. So let's not forget about the water. The sewage, the fecal matter, at the clean and disinfect, I think that's the objective uh, for the restoration process. After you clean and disinfect, you test for viable uh, E. coli, total coliform, entococcus, and viable total bacteria. Because the water component might promote bacterial growth other than the fecal origin uh, bacteria. So at the same time, you want to test for total bacteria. We have seen samples that completely clean with no E. coli and endococcus, but it has a lot of other bacteria because 
the material has been wet and they start to grow a lot of bacteria. So, and if you clean and disinfect properly, you shouldn't see high number of bacteria, viable bacteria in what's there. A, what's a high number? Uh, in a normal residential commercial property, if you can get deep down to 100 or a few hundred per square inch, that's a reasonable to achieve uh, for total bacteria. A lot of people don't want to see anything. They want zero E. coli, zero enterococcus. Total coliform is okay. You don't have to get it down to zero. But the point is, if you properly disinfect, you shouldn't see too many bacteria that include total coliform. So definitely get zero E. coli and zero enterococcus, but total bacteria and total coliform, reasonable to expect it to be below 100. But if it's in a less used area, it's difficult to disinfect. A few hundred, you know, see if you can talk with the consultancy what's the need for that. But all of the material is very easy, just uh, put it on TSA. And uh, of course, you do zero dilution and you put it on TSA. Most of the uh, aerobic viable material from indoor environment can go on that. So you cut down. For fecal origin material, you can get it in 48 hours. It takes a little bit more time to do a report, but two days, three days is, is definitely possible. Okay. So bacteria, it might wait a little bit longer, but if you have to, you can also read it in, a, in, in, in three days. We were talking there about the, the length of time at the end for these sample results, because obviously that's a huge issue for contractors and for building owners. Uh, and I know he had another comment. Before we go to our last clip, I want to bring in Dr. Wow. Dear, any any final comments on the the last year and um, maybe even the future of uh, where we're headed? Well, I, I, I uh, like I said many times, I learned something during the last year from all the people who were on our show. That is certainly uh, something, and. Um, from what I see, and when I talked to you know, architects and, uh, and people like that, uh, things are not going to get better. I think they're going to get worse. And what, the topics which we talked about will become even more important. It is unfortunate, but understandable that a lot of people who should know better don't know because that, hey, I have experience, I'm doing this for 20 years like this and this and this. And they don't realize that by just replacing a two-by-four out of wood with that out of metal, the wall will stand up, but it behaves differently. There is no doubt about it. And <coughs> Cliff knows it, and I just was down in Mexico again. People knew 2,000 years ago how to build efficient buildings. <laughs> And, uh, you know, you have thick walls. <laughs> well, of course, they didn't have windows. Well, down on the Yucatan Peninsula, you don't really need a lot of, you, know, you don't need a heater and, and you don't have to have double glazed uh, windows. But I think what we are talking about and spending more and more time indoors um, without adequate ventilation, and I mean by adequate ventilation right now, taking out what may have an impact on your health, I think we will see more and more issues arising from the topics which we have been talking about. And Joe said it. Are we doing this already for 10 years? Seven years on. 
seven years on the IAQ radio, dear. Oh, seven years. Well, close. 30%. What the heck? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And I, I think... I think we, we we will touch on more topics that are of more universal interest than they are right now. You know, dear, I think you make a good point in that. Um, and the other thing is, a lot of this information, I mean, it's not like every disaster restoration guy and uh, IAQ person and building scientists are listening to this show or, or are going to conferences or are... Um, getting a lot of continuing education. Um, I find even with those that are really following this stuff, um, it's going to take some time before they change their practices based on the information that's coming out. Can you imagine how long it's going to take to get to the people that, you know, they're just out there every day, you know, cleaning up after whatever, or uh, continuing to do water damage investigations and indoor air quality investigations, just like they have for the last 30 years. They're really not changing things that much. So I agree with you. It's going to get worse before it gets better, uh, especially now with, with Sam Rashkin's comment. I thought that was just fascinating. Thing. Oh, Sam is wonderful. Yeah, you know, and I, I listened, what, two hours, uh, maybe three hours to him. Uh, during our summer uh, break uh, uh, here in in the Pittsburgh in Somerset, uh, and uh, it was fascinating. Um, of you know, if you look far enough, you can see a lot of uh, problems and can prevent them. And it it has to be spelled out. Yeah, it's it's the information is there, but a lot of people don't know where to look. Let's put it that way. Yes. And that building code thing, they're going to change. They're going to build differently. A lot of these folks out here, I mean, there's hundreds of them in my area. I don't, they don't even know who I am. They're my neighbors. Um, they have no idea what we do, why we do it, what is indoor air quality. You know, it's just like they're going about their business, and they're going to just make whatever changes required by the law, and they are not going to recognize what the potential consequences are down the road. I think it's huge, and it's coming up, and it's going to come up and, and really smack a lot of people, uh, builders in particular, the, the smaller guys, unfortunately, that can't afford that building science guy on their staff. Hey, before we go, Cliff, I'd like to give you the final word on some, uh, you know, on, on uh, the year of 2013. Well, Joe, you know, I think it was a year of complication, and you know, my only comment to you and to Dieter and and to the audience is, my hope is that you know, Occam's razor comes more into play. That you know, the simplest solution most often is the best. With that. I'd have to say, uh, Cliff, that's a great point. And um, we had one more clip here from Danny Hunt, who's a good friend of both Deer and I. I think what I'm going to do is paraphrase it because uh, this is another important point that needs to be made. We were talking about project management, and Cliff was really, you know, he was excited that we did that. And I think rightfully so because he mentioned that it was a topic we really don't talk much about, and many people don't. We were discussing the push the tipping point of the project where you've got to get a lot done. You got to get a lot done quickly. And, um, well, you know what, Cliff, we're in charge here. Let's just play it. Uh, it's a three minute clip. Go for it, that after Danny's clip, we're going to play some outro music and we're all going to get back together here the beginning of January and start 2014 
I want everybody out there and uh, all of our listeners to, I want to thank you all for joining us. I want to thank the Z-Man for uh, hanging in there with us over the last seven years. Um, of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and Jessica Lawson. Great job today, Jess. We pulled it off. Uh, a lot of clips, a lot of back and forth. Let's finish with a clip from Danny Hunt, and then we'll do some outro music. And I'm just going to listen in all. Have a great holiday. We'll see you back here in January. And don't let anybody get in your way and, you know, move forward. And it's a push. And I think every job has that. And you have to recognize that it's coming. You have to prepare for it. And I, you got to be there. You got to be there. If, oh, you know, got to be there. You got to have you one gotta. of your key people be there. I see this all the time. It drives me crazy out there. These guys, they have now they're they're growing. They're getting bigger. They've got ten trucks instead of the two they had before. And there's nobody on that job site that has the 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 buy-in that's necessary to get through that period. You know. And that's when the owner's got to be there or one of his key people that also has some stake in things. You have to have somebody that uh, has the ability to get what they need on the spot. You have to have somebody that uh, you know, has the decision-making capabilities. And, you know, I, I, I agree with you 100 percent on there. Uh, you know, that that's a time you have to recognize and you got to be ready. You got to rock it. You got to rock it. Now, there's ways. Uh, I mean, you know, different people motivate people different ways. Uh, time and a half usually motivates most people. <laughs> uh, you know, then again, if it's, uh, you know, just a, a hard job that you got to get through, uh you know the people that you work with day in and day out. You know you just learn what the, what they need and let's get through this. And you know maybe maybe you get a little bit of time here, or, and or you go out for a dinner, or you go out for yeah. lunch, or you bring in a lunch, or, or right. you you go to the store and buy some extra refreshments of some kind they're not used to getting. You know just little. Well, things. you know even leading up to a push, I must say this, and I I mean even uh, now I'm farming and i have horses my dad always said to me when we were young and we had uh, uh we plowed the fields with the horses is he said you take care of the horses and the horse is going to plow a lot of field for you today yep you know you don't water them you don't feed them you don't give them rest you don't uh take care of them brush them you know not brush them the wrong way brush them the right way you yep. know and you, you take care of them. You take care of those horses, and you get a lot of fields plowed. And I find out what a push. You know, prior to it, you know, it, maybe it's a softening of this or, hey, you know what's coming up, you know, at 3 o'clock, we're after it, you know. And that's another thing, preparing them in advance. Very much so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, this, look, we know we've got this point coming up here, and we've got to work together to get through this point. And I can't afford to have any of you guys all of a sudden not show up or, you know, be on a hangover or whatever the case may be. You've got to be here. You've got to work hard. And You've been talking in circles. I've been able to cry. There's never been any reason. Never telling me why. Yeah, yeah.